Today we continue with the second part of our extended Talanoa series on the relationship between the U.S. and the freely associated states of Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia and Palau. This is as the funding arrangements around the so-called Compacts of Free Association are coming up for negotiation next year. If you have not yet listened to part one in this series, I'll include a link in the description of this episode of Pacific Waves on our website, rnzi.com. In it, we talked about the origins of the compacts, their purpose, and the current state of affairs. Today, I'm joined by Robert Underwood, President Emeritus of the University of Guam and the Territory's former Congressional Delegate in the U.S. House of Representatives. Kia ora and welcome on Pacific Waves. During your time in the House of Representatives, what kinds of conversations were you having with your fellow Micronesian leaders as they navigated these arrangements with the U.S. federal government? Well, of course, I, I came into office uh, as congressional delegate uh, after the first compact had been signed and in trying to implement that first compact. And uh, there were a number of issues and I always saw me, myself as, a, as a, you know, trying to help uh, my uh, fellow uh, islanders here in Micronesia. So I reached out to all the embassies, the uh, FSM. Uh, Marshall Islands and uh, Palau in Washington, D.C., and whatever I could do to help them along. Uh, Our issue from Guam's point of view at that time uh, was Compact Impact Aid, which was the the effect of migrants coming to Guam. And uh, one of the um, things that the migrants from the Compact states had was that they could freely migrate into the United States, which uh, under legal terms includes uh, Guam. And, uh, and as a result of that, there were, you know, issues pertaining to social services and educational services and costs, which were borne by the local government, uh, which were thought to be unfair. By the time the second compact came around, I was just leaving office, but I could tell that the compacts were going in a slightly different direction. And, and it's important to understand that even though these are funding arrangements, the kind of international global uh, situation uh, has an effect on what exactly these uh, financial arrangements are being made. So based on the second compact, going into the second compact, uh, the US government was mostly interested in um, uh, accountability. Uh, So the quote accountability, which meant, uh, you know, holding uh, the, uh, the freely associated states governments to uh, standards of uh, how are you spending your money, who's going to spend it, how are you going to authorize it. From the freely associated states point of view, this was micromanagement. So what to the federal U.S. government was accountability to the uh, freely associated states was micromanagement. So they came up with this uh, trust fund scenario where they would put money into a trust fund and that after 25 years, the, the financial uh, situation would sort of resolve itself and the money made from the trust fund. Well, of course, none of that ever happened. It was a kind of ambitious thinking to begin with. Uh, and so in the meantime, of course, the international situation has changed again dramatically. Now, we have to kind of put ourselves back at the time of the second compact in the 1990s. Uh, the U.S. Um, had basically uh, won the Cold War, so it seemed, and the Soviet Union had collapsed, and the uh, Eastern European states were, you know, clamoring to join NATO, and 
not all of them did, but some of them did. And so there was a so-called uh, peace dividend uh, in uh, U.S. thinking because, you know, this had ushered in a new world where the U.S. was preeminent in, in, in its standing internationally. And so there was kind of like, what are we really strategically, what, what are these islands really mean to us? Well, then came the war on terror after 9-11. And then, of course, the international situation changed a little bit. And then uh, subsequent to that, of course, uh, in recent years, we have the competition between uh, the U.S. and China. Uh, and China on the ascendancy, not only economically, but uh, militarily. And so now that is also now shaping the, uh, uh, the, the situation with the freely associated states. I think uh, the islands are being rediscovered all over again. So now, <laughs> first there was the initial discovery. Then there was like, well, let's just ignore them. Maybe they'll go away. Maybe everything will take care of itself. Now it's like, wow, these places are really important again. So all of that, of course, is going to have an impact into the financial arrangements that are being renegotiated. Even if the actual, uh, sometimes uh, people will point out, the actual compact itself goes on, you know, regardless of the financial situation. But of course, if you're now being seen as being more important than your, you know, than the, your value financially in, is enhanced. Uh, and it's, I guess it's a, it's a question of these tiny, tiny islands negotiating with a superpower. And I guess it's what kind of leverage do they have, right, in, in coming to these, to these negotiations? Well, it is, it is leverage. It's a, it's a, you know, kind of a form of jujitsu, which is a political jujitsu, which is, you know, how do you, how do you take your relative weakness and turn it into a strength? And um, and so that's that's the the that's what's in front of the uh, negotiators for the freely associated states. I I, I don't think there's any doubt um, on the U.S. side or on the freely associated side that there will be that at the end of the day they're going to sign something. <laughs> so the the point is uh, how how do you get there uh, relative to all of the activities that uh, are ongoing. With China, which now has the uh, U.S. State Department uh, thoroughly engaged, so just just sort of like uh, you know, because uh, from our point of view in Guam, we're always paying attention to these a little bit more than most uh, communities in the U.S. From our point of view, U.S. Uh, military activities have been large and dramatic and um, and uh, focused and the value of, uh, of uh, military access to the region, the ability to be able to run these huge uh, military exercises, sort of flexing their muscles, demonstrating that uh, this is uh, Micronesia is kind of an American lake in the middle of the Pacific. And so this, the, 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 the US Department of Defense is sort of keen to that, sort of understands that. State Department is not as keen to that. And so now, now, of course, the State Department is now sort of like, well, what happened? Where did we go wrong? What happened? Who, uh, you know, some conversations are like now, who lost the Pacific? What happened? Where did, uh, where, where did uh, we go wrong? And of course, 
Now they're going to open up the embassy in the Solomon Islands. Now they're kind of beefing up this uh, uh, the the relationship with the freely associated states. So so just just to kind of kind of comprehend that the freely associated states have sovereignty, so they're independent nations. Uh, but of course, they have a contractual arrangement with the with the United States, which is uh, one of free association. And so in that, the, the primary purpose of that is to sort of ensure a military access or, or, or denial of access by other nations. So that's hence the term strategic denial. So it's all focused on DOD. The State Department for years kept trying to treat the freely associated states just like any other country and just saying, well, they're just, it's like Kiribati or Nauru or, no, it's not. <laughs> countries that are, uh, uh, you have a really direct relationship. You have responsibilities like in the Marshall Islands, you have responsibilities for uh, nuclear issues. It's not the same. And so now, uh, now there's a, a kind of a attempt to reconfigure that inside, uh, inside the State Department. We'll come back probably to that a bit later, but looking now, turning to the compact impacts and, and the funding around that, with, with coming up to this, these negotiations next, next year, given all of the things that we've just talked about, the change uh, in the international geopolitics and where the U.S. is, is at now in terms of, uh, as you say, reconfiguring that, will that, will that give uh, Guam, Hawaii uh, more uh, leverage table to say, look, we know these are the impacts on us. This is the funding that we need. Is is there more available to them? I guess to get what they want, and is it is it also is it how legitimate is the actual need compared to what Micronesians contribute in in migrating to these these parts of the Pacific, the U.S. Pacific? Well, of course, calculating the the uh, they, they always want to talk about net impact, uh, you know, positives, negatives, things like that. But in reality, uh, a place like Guam has now uh, around 11 or 12 percent of the population uh, composed of migrants, you know, which has dramatically increased in the past 20 years. So uh, it's changing the nature of the society. Uh, in the most part, people are people. They get along well, uh, but there are a lot of strains and issues. But the, the, the thing that is really irritating and aggravating to the people of Guam is they have no say in that arrangement. That's, that's the difference. The difference is the state of Hawaii is a state. They help make federal law. They have two senators. They have two representatives. They have a legal structure in which they operate as full fledged U.S. citizens in making these compact arrangements. The territory of Guam has no role in that. It's like, well, not even observer, <laughs> not even an observer status. So that's the, that. It's, it's not just the, 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 uh, the compact migration. It's, it's the lack of understanding as to, wow, how, do, how does a territory how does a colony get affected by an international relationship between the Washington, D.C. and these countries? So these countries, of course, are 
generally sympathetic, but you know, sometimes there's misunderstanding on that score as well. Um, so uh, th there's those relationships. But in reality, the, uh, the, the, the Guam's value, of course, militarily is also, you know, uh, you talk about rediscovery. Now they've just rediscovered Guam all over again. Uh, there's anticipated huge uh, missile defenses, you know, coming in. And so the missile defense uh, structure uh, is, you know, is explained in various ways. What, what are we defending against and what are we defending, you know? And so obviously there's a lot of military assets here. I know people really have to know how important Guam is to the defense infrastructure of the United States. It's, it's no exaggeration to say that Guam is the single most important uh, U.S. asset on this side of the international daylight. So no, no exaggeration at all. Huge weapon storage, huge water storage, huge fuel storage, huge capacity to generate uh, activity from that. And, and having the ability to do that, because Guam is a territory, having the ability to use this assets without checking anybody. You know, if you have those assets in Okinawa, before you say, I'm going to fly these bombers over to Iraq or wherever you want to go, you tell the Japanese government, you know, you, you, and they'll, they'll usually agree, but they don't have to, but they'll say, you know, look, we're going to use our, and they do the same thing in Germany and wherever they, but in Guam, they don't have to say anything to anybody. So they just go ahead and use those facilities. So, so Guam is sort of like at the same time that it is the single most important island, it is at the same time the most powerless island in relationship to all this. So just think about that. So think about that from the Guam perspective. You know, that's, that's the issue. So uh, when, you, when you calculate all that, uh, what does that mean? Well, now uh, here we're, we're hearing all kinds of missile defense rhetoric here in, in Guam and the Marianas. They're moving in army, army uh, missile defense, Navy missile defense. There's always some competition between the army and the Navy. There's Navy missile defense, there's army, and then there's defense contractors. Can you imagine how much, we're now we're talking seven, eight billion dollars. How much money is being, is anticipated to be made by contractors, not just by people in uniform, but people who used to be in uniform, but are now working for the contractors. And the contractors are developing a whole, you know, explaining how valuable this is, why this system works better, and why you need this system, why this system is so important. So when you add that, what, what does that mean? How is Guam explained to, uh, how is it explained to people in Guam? You know, we're setting up this missile defense structure, and uh, they say 360 degrees. You know, so, okay, well, that's a full circle. I mean, you know, sort of like a, a iron dome kind of thing like you have in Israel, except that in Israel, the, the missiles are coming from 50 miles away. You know who they are. So the, the, the iron dome works a little bit better here. Not real clear. But um, in any event, that's, that's the phenomena that is occurring here. And so... 
you know, there's a lot of facilities being built. Uh, Marines are being taken off of Okinawa, put here in Guam. So a lot of things going on here. And, uh, and so in conjunction with that, it's, uh, you know, there's going to be anticipated use of some land in Palau, maybe some in the FSM uh, as uh, uh, kind of part of these network of facilities, not permanent um, military bases like you have in Guam, but something along those lines that, uh, you know, uh, over the horizon radar, listening stations, uh, uh, places to divert aircraft and, and uh, warships and things like that. Now, that's fascinating. Um, and yeah, and how much of that... Um, I'm just diverting along that track now because I think that's super interesting is is actually like strategic and how much of it is flexing as you mentioned of just trying to show show so how much might there is still in the US military well in the you know it's always hard to to assess that of course because you know the uh, the, the the Chinese are uh, upsetting the way things are in the Pacific they are the, the aberrant force that's coming in. So, you know, and how, how does that get played? And so uh, now you have uh, all of a sudden, the, um, you know, we're for, uh, you know, I always find this interesting. We're for open sheaves, okay? If we're for open sheaves, open to who? And close to some and open to others. We're for the free exercise of sovereignty. Well, how about people who don't have sovereignty? Are they going to get their free exercise of sovereignty? So all of the use of these terms have meanings and, uh, and consequences to their meanings, which are not uh, fully appreciated until you see how, in a way, they're kind of disjointed in, the, in their application to the island Pacific. Because, you know, free and open Pacific, well free and open Pacific at the same time you're really trying to close a big part of the Pacific to uh, Chinese access, it's not a free and open Pacific. Now, that's not to say that there may be good reasons to keep the Chinese out. That's, that's a different question. But you kind of get, um, you know, you kind of reveal the emptiness sometimes of your own statements when you, when you kind of peel it away. So, you know, so uh, President Biden uh, went to um, uh, Japan recently and South Korea. Uh, Secretary Blinken was down there in Fiji and other places and, uh, you know, trying to, and now the Chinese foreign minister is making his rounds. Wow, it must be great to be a Pacific sovereign nation. People <laughs> <laughs> are paying attention to you. It's Everything like, wow. is on the table. All yeah. of a sudden, hey, <laughs> And of course, the the, uh, the 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 upshot of all this is that is that the the Pacific nations now understand that they have sovereignty, and they and as long as they understand, and, and you know how how they're going to use that, who they're going to how they're going to exercise that, that's that's up to them. But at least this go around, there's more uh, attention to that, you know. And then, of course, there's that's uh, kind of uh, the, the the underlying basis of what is the real security concern of Pacific Islands. And as it turns out, you know, 
it has little to do with geopolitics and has to do more with climate uh, change and the threat to their existence as islands. So that's, uh, that's, that's a threat that won't go away. You can't negotiate away climate change. See? You can't build enough missiles to threaten climate change. You can't scare them off. You have to do something. And that's a, that's a different uh, challenge. And of course, for uh, many Pacific nations, that's pretty existential. It's immediate, you know, in the sense that a couple of decades is immediate. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, what's the difference between 2022 and 2002 and, you know, 2042? Well, you know, 2042 is going to come. What is it going to look like? I, I love the way this conversation has taken. It's really great. I really, I'm tempted to end it there, but I do, I do, uh, and I probably will cut it uh, at some point for broadcast a bit shorter, but I, I must uh, press press on with just looking at Guam's, if you can just outline before I ask uh, a bit more about it, what is Guam's push in regards to Rika? The, is it Radiation uh, Compensation Yeah, Act? survivors. The radiation, uh, uh, yeah. So obviously as a result of the uh, nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands, a couple of things have happened. Uh, I, I, I want to quote my good friend who's passed away, Annie Faleoma Vallenga of American Samoa, who used to love to say uh, the U.S. Has, has detonated 65 nuclear devices, two against their enemies and 63 against their friends. <laughs> so that helps kind of characterize uh, what happened in the Marshall Islands. But of course, there were a lot of, uh, well, there's always a lot of unintended consequences, but unintended consequences bring about new responsibilities. And so one of the things, of course, that happened as a result of this is not just atmospheric uh, contamination, but a lot of the stuff that was contaminated was brought to Guam. And so it's unclear, uh, you know, to what extent uh, uh, people of Guam have uh, suffered as a result of this. Uh, atmospherically, it'd be pretty tough to make that case, but other ways, yes, you'd have to analyze cancer rates. So in any event, uh, RICA uh, is being extended for another few years. And in that time process, uh, uh, many advocates, including a good friend of mine, Bob Celestial, uh, will be uh, working on this to extend it to Guam. And Bob Celestial has another uh, element to it. He and two other uh, guys from Guam worked on Inuita to clean up the facility. And so they were in the army. I was just talking to them this morning. He said, well, we're just young. They told us to go around. We went to all different atolls, collected the, the, the nuclear contaminated stuff, took it to run it and dumped it in the dome. And of course, they themselves are, are suffering from the consequences of that. And they are not considered atomic veterans because they were involved in the cleanup. They weren't there during the testing, but they weren't. So there's a, a few issues about this. And of course, a lot of this is going to be dependent on how, uh, you know, how the U.S. government and the marshals uh, come to some kind of final solution on this. And they will. And that solution uh, has to be in the negotiated process. Uh, it's not going to be resolved by some scientific study. Um, is, is Guam's push with RICA 
will that help the Marshall Islands? Because I know it was a big part to, uh, well, it was at least part of Compact 1, but kind of taken off the table with Compact 2. Uh, coming up to the, the, to, to the next negotiations, do you think there is space for that to again be sort of brought back on the table? Well, all of this helps. The attention to it helps. So people will ask, you know, why, why are we extending it to Guam? What is the point of this? Well, you know, it's not the nuclear testing that happened in New Mexico that we're talking about. It's the nuclear testing that happened to the Marshall Islands and what happened there. So all of that attention will, and of course, I believe President Kabua has kind of drawn a red line on that issue uh, for the Marshall Islands. So it means it'll, it'll be up for negotiation. Uh, whether, you know, uh, you know, sometimes you rely on study after study after study and you know, at some point in time, you're going to have to say, okay, this is the deal. And uh, so this is uh, 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 what's going to be arranged. And hopefully they'll come to some kind of resolution. But any kind of attention to that is good for RICA. It's good for the extension of RICA to Guam. It's good for attention to these, uh, uh, these uh, individuals who worked on the cleanup. Uh, imagine how tragic uh, this. And they are not counted as atomic veterans, so they don't get any of the special benefits that the uh, some of their other people, friends in uniform got. Yeah, that, that is crazy. Thank you so much for your time. It's, it's always a, a pleasure talking with you, sir. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you, Karan.